0: Wow- The first time I heard that song, was in our van, my wife bought a CD by David Crowder. and we uh, were riding down the road, and I kept listening to it over and over again. And uh, before we knew it, the whole van was filled with voices. Singing at the top of their lungs, oh how he loves us, oh how he loves us. I looked in the rearview mirror, and Lily was just she just learned English, she was just belting it out, belting it out. I thought, you know, she doesn't get it all yet, but oh, she knows he loves her. And if her daddy could understand that God loves him, what a difference, what a change. What a transition. He loves us. Let's pray. Father, we're a little overwhelmed. A lot overwhelmed by your goodness and your mercy. With which you set your love on us. In the son of your love, Jesus Christ, you have forgiven us. And you have become sin on our behalf so that we might become your righteousness. And I don't get it, and we don't get it, and so we are just asking you to be merciful and to continue to apply that truth to our lives, to our hearts, to our minds and renew us anew every morning. If you don't, Lord, we will stray into other loves and other passions and other desires and we'll create idols and we'll make them look like us. Help us, God, to live in the reality that it exists because of your Son, our Savior. Help us to live in the reality that you love us. May it never grow old. May it never grow cold. And then, God, would you bind our hearts through you together. To love one another. And to turn out from here to this world and be salty light. You'll have to, um, Lord, change us. And you'll have to move in us. And, Lord, then you through your courage and your strength and your grace and your mercy, we will rise in service because you love us. It's in your great name we pray. Amen. Amen. John Mitchell wrote a letter to Henry Cavendish in 1783. And I I don't want to read the whole letter, and you might not know who they are, and you science buffs might know who they are, you nerds. (laughs) Listen to what he says. If the semi-diameter of a sphere of the same density as the sun were to exceed that of the sun in the proportion of 500 to 1, A body falling from an infinite height towards it would have acquired at its surface greater velocity than that of light, and consequently, supposing light to be attracted by the same force in proportion to its this inertia, with other bodies, all light emitted from such a body would be made to turn towards it towards itself by its own proper gravity. That grips you, doesn't it? 1783. Dude's sitting around drinking some strong English tea. (laughs) Writing letters. And then it took 200 roughly, a little less. 1915. This smart guy that didn't know what hairspray and a comb looked like put it into an equation. Albert Einstein gets the credit for the theory and the law of relativity. But John Mitchell, in 1783, without much aid of any modern technology, thought deeply about God's creation and came up with a thought, as deep as this, that you and I couldn't explain over a cup of tea, Maybe a few could. And the thought of a black hole got its start. In 1783, it got its start. I mean, we crowned Stephen Hawking the smartest man in the world because he stands on the shoulders of men like John Mitchell and writes in a book and everybody reads it and thinks, Wow, that dude's a genius. I'm glad we ain't cavemen anymore like they are in the Geico commercial. You know, everybody back then was dumb. We're smart. A black hole. Fascinating marvel of the universe. We debated. It kind of fell out of existence for a while, the thought of this in the 1800s was beyond reason. And so guys just dismissed it in the scientific world. They didn't want to study it or dig into it. And then I said, as I said earlier, Albert Einstein was weird enough to pick it up and study it again and figures out an equation and presents it And it's accepted. And then we begin to look with high-powered technology as time moves forward. And we begin to see what they had theorized was happening at the center of galaxies. Stars gleaming bright. Years later, red. Years later, dead. Gone. Poof. Where'd they go? no nobody really understands it fully but we got these equations and we got these thoughts and like i said really smart guys took these basic ideas given by one man to another in a letter and researched it to a more complex state of understanding and stephen hawking brought the thinking of quantum physics light years forward building a greater understanding from the earlier works of albert einstein and others and we now readily accept the idea of many black holes, not that there might be one in the universe, but there are many of them all over the universe. These black holes, most scientists agree that they come in varying sizes and their strength proportional to their size. And the location of the black holes are or, or dark stars as they were earlier called. Uh, that were unknown to earlier generations. Now through things like the Hubble Telescope and and other great scientific inventions, we're starting to think we find some of these things. And it's beautiful. It's magnificent. But I'm telling you about black holes, not to have a science lesson, because I couldn't teach it if we had it, okay? I don't understand it all. It is fascinating. But but the, but just to say that black holes are referred to in this way because by nature they trap matter. They Once they get, I'm being unscientific here, but once they reach this point which John Mitchell is describing, they then go from emitting light to sucking light inside itself. And matter, consequently, inside of itself. It's collapsing on itself over and over again. And that... Energy pool puts out a field of energy, which then if something gets in that energy, it gets sucked in. That's oversimplified, I know. Lots of holes, problems. I'm not the science teacher. Talk to David Cato. He gets it. Okay, He can show you the, all the math to it. In my layman way of thinking, it's akin to a physical or a physics train wreck. In my, in my mind. It's just a train wreck. And everybody likes to look at wrecks, don't they? I mean, 160 plus thousand people are going to show up down here in April and in October. And they're praying a train wreck happens on the race course, right? I mean, that's what people go to Talladega Digger for. They want to see, people want to see Carl Edwards almost in the stands, dude. That's why they pay the money. Train wrecks, we like train wrecks. And scientists are no different than us. They're just more sophisticated. Their train wrecks are just bigger, more massive, and more, you know, refined. But they're still, in my mind, as best I can understand it, they're fascinating, but they're fascinating in a gruesome way. Everyone's fascinated by black holes the way people are fascinated with a chaotic and destructive train wreck or car wreck. And yet, they do exist in our universe. We know they do. And today, I want us to see in a very strange way, there is a parallel, I believe, to this physical phenomena in our spiritual world. There's a parallel. And, and I want to read it. Or the, 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 I'm not going to, We're not going to read the parallel. I'm going to postulate or make a guess about the parallel based on what we can see in the Scripture. Matthew 5 verses 13 through 16. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You recognize the passage. I mean, it's a very familiar passage. Once you get there, you'll say, oh yeah, yeah, I didn't even have to flip there. I know that one. Most of you that hung around church a while have heard countless sermons about it. You, Jesus speaking to the disciples, are the salt of the earth. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So here's the connection I'm making in my mind, or I have made it in my mind over the weeks that I've thought about this passage preparing to to live it hopefully and preach it to you. And some of you are already there because you're fast. Christ has saved us. To be stars, stars, light-emitting stars, not to be dark stars, black holes. Christ saved us so that we might be externally focused, not inwardly focused. Externally focused on what? We talked about it last week. First of all, on God. We're externally focused. God is out there, we were told by Francis Schaeffer. God is out there. He's not in here, is He? So you can't focus on God internally. That that, that doesn't work. He's not in you naturally. He's not in you. So when He saves us, when God saves us in Christ, it's for an external focus first to God. With all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind. The whole person that you are, we said last week, loves God. And because you love God and He loves us, you love us. You love God who drives you to love others. God did not save us. God did not save us that we might become black holes. God saved us that we might be bright lights. And Jesus, when He saves us with this external focus maintains that external focus through a purpose which is applied over time to reach a kingdom. Remember from last week? And what we call the applying over time, the purpose, is vision. We call that vision. I'm not a vision guru. I'm not going to tell you something you don't know or you can't find. I didn't fall asleep one night and God gave me a message but studying God's word, it becomes apparent that many of us are black holes, myself included. Black holes sucking all things into ourselves, and, and we're much worse than universal black holes or physical black holes. We're the worst kind of black hole. And and you say, I don't get it. Okay. Just an example. No names, right? They don't exist at Grace Fellowship. You judge the performance of your local congregation partner membership. Whether it be Grace Fellowship or you're visiting another church. You judge that church based on what it does for you. What it does for your children. Your idea of success in the church is, am I getting my needs met? Do people love me enough? Do people befriend me enough? Do people spend enough time with me? Do they do enough for my children? Do they do enough for my husband? Do they visit me enough? Do they call me enough? Do they write me enough? It's all about me. We're like black holes. We get on that little edge and everything gets sucked in. It never goes out. I asked you last week, ask yourself this question in application. If the church went out of existence in our community, this church went out of existence, who would care? I think some people outside the walls of this church would care, but not very many, and it's because I'm a black hole. And a lot of us are. All the energy of Grace Fellowship is sucked here, sucked in, sucked in. All the resources, sucked, sucked, sucked in. And Jesus is saying, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. The concept that someone wouldn't know about a New Testament fellowship of believers is foreign to Jesus and Paul and Timothy. If you ask Paul the same question, Paul, the church at Ephesus ceased to exist, who cares? He could have given you everybody in Ephesus as the answer. Because the focus was not about me and what I get, but rather what God has given so that I might give. We're like black holes. And we built our churches this way. Now, I, I, I'm, we're In other words, it's easy to stand here and hide and say, it's y'all's fault. But it's not true. Totally. Not completely. Because the leaders direct you to be black holes often. We prop it up. We baby it. We propagate it. We continue it one generation to the next. I was thinking about this and I was trying to think back. Like when can I see a church that I think... Is not a black hole, and there's some modern ones that I'm not going to get into because y'all think it's cult to personality. I just like people, you know, and then y'all be wondering why I don't like other people, and that that's not it. So we'll look way back to a church that existed a long time ago, and I don't care if you think I like this guy because I do. But we had to, we could go back and back and back, and I know one that I've studied, and that being the church at Geneva. The Reformation happens. People are leaving the Catholic Church. They're meeting together as bands of believers. And what we see happening in Geneva is chaotic, crazy growth. Do you know they trained over 15,000 pastor missionaries in the Church of Geneva? Didn't know that, did you? They reached Brazil with the message of the Gospel. So much for the theory that Calvin and his followers didn't want anybody to go to heaven. They died on the chopping blocks of France for the gospel. He was training pastors. He was training men. He was training women. They were living it out in their context of Geneva and people were leaving them. The best that they had were leaving going to Scotland like John Knox who came to Geneva and then went back and started the Scottish Reformation. They were coming from France and then going back into France and... Starting church after church after church after church with preach the gospel, and we look at that and we think, Boy, that's phenomenal. And Jesus would say, That's average. When you've done all I've told you to do, just remember you're an unworthy servant. You've only done what I told you to do. John Calvin's not exceptional, neither is his church. He believed this passage. He wasn't a black hole sucking resources in, worried about what he could get or who could protect him or my buddies, my friends. He was thinking, how can I train this guy that he might go there? How might I train this guy so he can go down the street? How, how can this guy be a better founder, a better, a better carpenter, a better shoe cobbler? How can we help them live like Christ? He was training, he was training, giving and giving. And people, it's contagious. And everybody in the church started giving and giving and giving. And God has made that church a bright light. So much so they wrote it over the wall of Geneva. Darkness and then light. The inscription, I haven't been there, but it's there. How does it happen? It's, it's not rocket science or quantum physics, it's basic Bible. And this is where I'm wanting to go, okay? I'm, and it's going to bleak, deep. you're going to think, man, why do we even have to go over there to eat? I want you to get to eat because I'm giving you a lot to think about. And I want to just talk to you just shortly over there about what I'm talking about here. Because we created these models of church. I'm going to describe them for you, okay? They're not original to me. Colin Marshall, Tony Payne, they, they spent their lives, 35 years, writing about these models of church. And sovereignly, God placed it in my hands as a gift and I was going to read a chapter and then get busy doing that. And I told Dave this morning, I have my Bible out and this book out, and I'm underlining, and I'm flipping, and I'm reading, and I'm studying. And I'm saying, they say it a lot better than I do. That's what I've been feeling and thinking, but they got it. You know, they, they, they put it in better words. And so I'm going to give you some models here of church. Some people call them paradigms. Rod said don't use that word because people think, what's a paradigm? You know, which I do too. A model, mind setting. How we think about church. See if you recognize this. I'm not going to tell you which one I think Grace Fellowship is. These are overgeneralizations. We might be some in both categories. But I'm going to give you two categories. And then don't listen through and then say, where are we? Pastor as clergyman model. Okay? The pastor is the preacher and the service provider. Sunday is a service of worship. We come together to worship God. That's how we think of it. And so outside of Sunday, we have occasional services. Sometimes, you know, when the mood's right, the spirit moves or something. Right? And so we have these occasional services. But generally, the pastor spends his time outside of the pulpit counseling and visiting. Counseling and visiting, counseling and visiting, visiting and counseling, visiting, 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 counseling. Right? Church is like a small corner store with one or two or three employee, family employees who are managing the shop. That's the way church can find And the result of this is a consumer mentality and the maintenance mode kicks in. We want to maintain this. These churches are about 100 at max 150 big. Cuz one man or a couple men can't do more than that. Okay? And that model carried us from the reformation shortly after all the way through the late 70s. And the Jesus movement hit us. We got the feeling Something ain't right. The wind, it's a-changing. It was in us, wasn't it? We just got to change it. Against the wind. I'm running against the wind. That was the church logo, too. It was our thoughts. I was barely born. 77, I broke the scene. Elvis died, I was born. No correlator, just same, same here. So, I didn't live through the change, but I lived through the implementation of it. Pastor moved from clergyman to CEO. Ah, I get head nods now. I got it. That's some bad stuff. I'm against it. Pastor is to preach and manage. He preaches, he manages. Right? Right? Sunday is all about attracting new people, keeping their interest. We gotta have slick meetings, sensitive to everybody's needs and wants, right? Outside of Sunday, we have a range of events and programs, lots of stuff going on. Tons of it. Children's programs, youth programs, college programs, single programs, drug addicted programs, divorce recovery programs. We got program, 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 program. The bigger we get, the more programs we get, the more people we got to manage. Because this is like a department store. We're like Walmart. One-stop shop. Get it all at church. Right? And pastoral care started happening through small groups. This thing got big. It went from 150 to 500 to 1,000. The really slick ones in big cities. Five, 10, 15,000, 20,000, 35,000. Monstrous. So that's too big. What do we do? Don't scrap the model, dude. We're getting paid a lot of money. Lots of good things happening. Let's just get some small groups going. So then we got little small groups meeting and everybody's relating in that way. And that's what keeps you hooked into that big monster is the small. That's the tentacles of the big church. The small group. Results here. The result here is that we take the consumer mentality and now instead of maintaining what we got, we're focused on growing what we got. Got to grow it. Got to keep it going. Got to get our brand out there. And those are the two models that we've had in the Western world for 500 years. 500 years of church growth and church life has been sucked up in that. Resources, people, energy, have been and time have been marshaled to maintain our institutional churches, that black hole which is sucking everything in. And we know as we study and as we think as we grow, we know something's not right. But we just can't quite put our finger on it. You ever been there? I know that's not it. I don't want to go back to, you know, Friar Tuck. But that guy that's so slick and polished and all the program, man, he bothers me too. I don't really get it. I don't know what I'm missing, but I'm missing something. And just in, we just intuitively start getting this way when we grow. And so where are we? With Grace Fellowship, I'm saying, because it doesn't matter where everybody else is. Where are we? Well, we're mainly a clergy church with a little bit of CEO wrapped up in it. We've tried, not you, we, me, the leadership here. We've adopted a better model, the best tried to get the best of both worlds, and tried to be biblical, and we haven't been completely wrong, but there's still something and you sense it that's missing, and we're not quite sure where it is or what it is. Growth gets measured in black holes by attendance, contributions programs started, programs that die, any number of other things that have been instituted for spiritual growth. And and like I said, I'm not upset at everybody else. I think we're in the same mix, in the same default position. We've drifted into default patterns in so many ways around here. And it's our lack of understanding and our lack of intentional leadership that lets us drift there. I'm being real transparent with you. Okay? You can even amen that. I won't be mad. I agree. I think we all do. We drift. We drift back to what we're comfortable, what we're used to. And I'm not ignorant of my audience. A lot of you grew up in the small country churches that were clergy driven. It's what you knew, it's what your parents know. That man preaches, he's a godly man. Preaches, drinks coffee with me, counsels me when my marriage is bad. When I get through that, I have kids, and he baptizes my kid, marries my kids, and buries me, and everybody's happy. He did his job. Or if he doesn't drink enough coffee, then he's got a problem got to go, because we need somebody that drinks better coffee. Right? It's oversimplification, but you get it. He's not meeting my needs. He's got to go. we got to get somebody in here to meet my needs. Or... Some of you have been in the CEO model. A few. Not many, but a few. Some of you have been in some bad CEO models. Okay? But it's not that all those models are awful and they're all completely wrong. It's that they're not biblical. The clergy model is not biblical. Neither is the CEO model. It's not biblical. That's the problem. It's not that they don't have good things. Small groups are a great thing, an exceptional development in church life. Home groups are even better, and that's a big thing. But it's not that in and of itself isn't worth keeping the CEO model, is what I'm saying. The fact the pastor ought to visit people out of his natural outflow of who he is as a Christian. That's not the problem. The problem is the expectation. That grows with that visiting program, which then becomes unbearable for you, or the pastor, because you're sitting there tapping the foot, saying, "Where is he at?" And he's sitting there thinking, "Hair going everywhere. I gotta preach. I gotta go see this guy, that guy. This guy's coming for counseling. I got, I gotta manage all this, and he can't do it. And he's frustrated. You're frustrated. Everybody's frustrated because it's not biblical. And I'm not a genius for that. I didn't figure it all out. As I said, there's lots of people that believe that. But I believe it. I've lived it. I believe it. And we just got to have the courage to admit our failures and our mistakes and our sin and repent and say, well, then what is biblical? What does it look like then? Because I don't know anything else. that's what I'm saying. A shift in your mind, a shift in our model is what's going to happen at Grace Fellowship over time by the grace of God is a shift. And it's a big shift. And some of you aren't going to like the shift But hang in there. Don't leave us. We're going to get it wrong sometimes. But tell us we're wrong and love us anyway. And we'll we'll keep driving at the word to figure out what it is we're missing. Okay? Okay. So, Jesus has the answer. He gives good instruction. Very practical with his application. It's not too late for us is what I'm saying. Don't be discouraged. It's not too late. Because the light, the big light, has overcome the world. And the darkness in, it, in, in our own hearts has been overcome by Him. And therefore we can be salty light in our dark world. So we look at our passage. All that to set up what is it we're to be about as Christians and then as churches. This passage that we're looking at comes on the heels of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are like a theological, abstract, this is a Christian. Jesus is saying, this is what Christians look like. But it's abstract, and we don't do good with abstract. We don't think well with abstract. Jesus knows that, so he goes immediately into a physical representation of what he's been teaching in the Beatitudes. That's what we're at, is this physical representation. It's the Beatitudes for real life. That's the context of our passage. And that, inside of a large book written or letter written by Matthew, focused on the kingdom. His focus is the kingdom. He's saying, he's announcing the kingdom has come. That's what Matthew's point is. We've been looking for the kingdom, his name is Jesus, and now we're in the kingdom because of him, so let's live that way. That's what Matthew's doing with this whole gospel, the kingdom has come, his name is Jesus, follow King Jesus. That's what Matthew's trumpeting to his Jewish audience and the Gentiles that would read it. Right? And so that's the context, is the setting for this little passage that we're going to exegete, look at closely, dig out. So the first thing we see in the passage is that the world is in a constant state of decay. And Christians are to be the preservative of God in the world. The world's in a constant state of decay. It's breaking down. It's dead and it's decaying. It's dying. And Christians are to be the salt that preserves the world. And some of your models just got turned upside down because I thought we were trying to get out of the world. We built the Family Life Center so we could pay $5 and join it so we don't have to work out with a bunch of heathens. Come get on our island with us. That's what the church has been screaming at the community. Come get on our island with us. We got it figured out. And the community is saying, no thanks. Meanwhile, they're dying. They're dead and they're dying. Without us, we've moved out. Literally in sometimes we've moved out. And so, what's he saying? You are the salt of the earth. Immediately, the Jews, his audience would have said, we use salt to keep the meat from decaying. Jesus is saying, we're to keep the world from decaying. They would have got it that quick. You missed it. I missed it because we got refrigeration. They didn't have refrigeration. So they rubbed all their meat with salt, packed it with salt to keep it fresh, as fresh as possible, as right as possible. It wasn't fresh, but it was right. It it, it didn't make them sick when they ate it, okay? And they would have immediately, I think, thought of that, and and they would have applied it immediately. We're to be in the world, living like the Beatitudes, like the Christians, that He's made us. We're to be out there, not in here. That's the first thing I think he's saying. The world, then, secondly, is bland and pointless. And Christians are to be the flavor. The spice of life. If we polled a hundred lost people, I'm not sure any of them would say Christians are the spice of life. Because our mind's wrong. Our model's wrong. The world knows what we're against. They don't know who we're for. The world knows we don't believe in some social graces. They don't know why or which ones we are for. They see us as dead, stodgy, cold, introverted, heady, answer men, Bible thumpers. They know no point to life. The world doesn't. They think it's madness and chaos. You live a while, you get some, then you die. That's their their motto in every phase of life. And we don't seek to preserve them, as Jesus said. We try to get away from them. And when they do bump into us, we're trying to tell them why they're wrong rather than love God and love them. We're trying to straighten their act up so they'll come to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, flavor life so they get thirsty. And it tastes good to them. They say, man, I want more of that. I, where, what, Why do you act that way? It's a, it seems like such a contradiction to their natural mind. You know, a real Christian does. They say, man, you're the funnest dude I know and you're a Christian. It's like it's an oxymoron. It shouldn't be that way. Christians are to not only preserve the world by our being here, but we're to flavor it, make life taste good for our neighbors, for our friends, for our co-workers. Jesus is telling them, you're the salt of the earth. Then He says, the world is unaware of its need for the water of life. And Christians make them thirsty. Not only do you taste good, but it's like a Pringles chip. You just can't get one. You know, you can't get enough with one. you got to just keep eating them. you got to keep eating them. You get thirsty. And then you're looking around saying, man, I'm thirsty. That's what happens in the life of unbelievers when true, authentic, salty, light-filled Christians get around them. They say, man, that guy right there is an enigma to me. He's a Christian who lives with purpose and he loves it. And he keeps talking about this Jesus character. I don't know who that is, but he must be greater than anything I know. I want to know about that guy. When's the last time somebody came up and said, could you just tell me what the point of your life is? I'm watching you and I want to be like you, but I don't know how you got that way. When's the last time? That anybody did that. Now, when's the last time somebody came up and said, boy, you look like, you're having a tough day. Well, that happens to me all the time. But it's been a long time since somebody said, your life's attractive, I want to be like you. How'd you get that way? And Jesus said, it ought not be that way. If you really live as my followers, as my disciples, you'll preserve your communities. They'll be better than they would be without you is what I'm saying. Will you save them all? No, but it'll be a lot better place than it would be if you weren't there. It will taste good. Life will taste good. And people will be thirsty. People will long for the water of life. They might not know how to say it, but they'll be wanting to know how are you who you are? You don't fit my category, my paradigm, my model. So... Then he moves to another analogy, which is just as powerful. And it's the one I was drawn off of with the dark star analogy, the black hole. The world is dark and without godly form. The world's a dark place and it's without godly form. It's fallen into disarray. And Christians are to be light, which brings the darkness under submission of the one true light. Christians are to be the light in the world. Jesus is the light of the world. Well, He is in John 8. He said, I'm the light of the world. But the world will only see His light if His light comes through you. If it comes through me. The world is in chaos. It's breaking down all around us. It's degenerating. And meanwhile, we're sitting back in our walls and saying, let it rot. Let it stink. Let it be chaotic. We got ours. We're okay. And Jesus is saying, get out of the salt shaker. Don't be a black hole. Get in the world. Bring it under submission. Subdue it. Have dominion over it. Like Adam was supposed to. And bring me to it. The water of life. So. Finally we see that the world needs salty lights. Who will be... In both word and deed, pointing to the Father in heaven. We don't want to create a buzz about grace fellowship. We want to create a buzz about the Father in heaven. You don't want to create a buzz about you, you want to create a buzz about Him. And so you're living this beatitude filled life as a Christian committed to Christ. And people initially say, Why are you like that? And your answer is not, I'm this way because of, and the answer is something containing about you or some discipline you got, but I'm this way because of Him. It's not me, it's Him, it's Jesus. And then they see all those good works and they give Him glory. Not you. Not our church. It's not about our church. If Grace Fellowship then, how does that apply corporately? All that's individual. How does it apply corporately? Then if Grace Fellowship will be a band of salty, light-filled Christians, a band of those, we'll have to undergo a major shift in our thinking in regard to life and ministry. That's what we as elders, as leaders, want to introduce to you today and in days to come. The whole detailed plan won't be laid out, but the parameters, the beginnings. And as we live and communicate, it'll grow biblically from the exegesis and exposition of God's Word. There are more questions than answers right now as to how we work out in our lives here at Grace Fellowship this passage and the meaning of a church but I am and we are convicted convinced that the only reason we should continue to exist is if we desire to be salty, light-filled Christians the challenge is this That we view ourselves as partners in the ministry, laboring in his field for his kingdom. Over time, God will, I believe, recreate or create a band here of brothers. Salty, light-filled, sacrificial, service-oriented, seeking the salvation of the lost, filled Christians. Who are all about God's kingdom, not about Grace Fellowship or themselves. And it will be done only if he does it. I can't do it. You can't do it. It's overwhelming. Some of you have more questions now than you did before. You said, tie this thing up, man. Tell us what we're supposed to do. That's how we got the other models. We wanted to do something. So we went and created something that would satisfy us. That's how all idols end up being idols. They were asking these questions in the early church. And their answers were, I don't know. Let's pray and let's just tell people about Jesus. Let's just pray some more and then tell people about Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, teach them all we can about the Word of God, by the grace of God, so they might look like Him one day. And then let's just keep praying about it. And God will keep... They didn't have an answer. For the steps, because it looked different in Antioch than it did in Jerusalem, than it did in Corinth, than it did in Ephesus. It just looked different everywhere. And so I don't have those neat little boxed-up presentation here. Here it is. Do these five steps, and we're cool. We got it. We're in. It don't happen that way. It's going to be messy. It's going to be intense. You're going to get mad at me. I'm going to get mad at you. I'm going to love you anyway. And I just want you to love me anyway. And love the elders anyway. You say, I feel exposed. Good. Just pray. Man, just pray and beg God to do what only God can do. I don't feel like i got any answers. You don't need answers. You need God. He'll give answers. And there's answers. We're going to get there. We're going to get to some of them over here. Okay? There's answers. So what did I accomplish today? Hopefully, I started lighting dynamite under this model and lighting dynamite under that model, and now we just got... Pssst. And we're all messy. And we're all say, well, that was fun. And we need to feel exposed and scared, and I don't know if I'm in on this or not, we need to feel all of that, and be driven to God and to His Christ, our Savior, and to each other. Okay. All right. Let's pray together, and then we got instructions to drive, and we're just we, we're not going to do a lot more announcing. We did a lot of announcements, such as.